my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Members to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with William Attaway. He is a leadership coach for Catalytic Leadership, LLC, a company he founded to help leaders intentionally grow and thrive. He has served in local church ministry for nearly 25 years and is currently the lead pastor of Southview Community Church. It's a, uh, it's a church in Herndon, Virginia, near Washington, D.C. Um, William's been there since 2004. He holds a Ph.D. in Old Testament with an emphasis in biblical backgrounds and archaeology. He loves to read and speak about leadership, organizational change, archaeology, and building up people and teams. His newest book is Catalytic Leadership, and we're going to talk about that. And there's just so many aspects of, of Dr. Attaway that uh, just has sparked my curiosity and I want to dive into a lot of that but what I'm most curious about is the path that you took to get to where you're at now um, so first let me thank you for coming on the show and and having this conversation with me I really appreciate it uh, Dave it's an honor to be here thanks so much for having me yes sir well um Let's let's dig into where it all began. Uh, where were you born and raised, and and what were some of your early influences? I was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, early influences. You know, you, you look back and you try to trace a thread, right, and try to see some origin story and where this began. And I think for me, it began in high school. I was about 15 years old, and I had a teacher who saw something in me that I did not see in myself and invited me to attend my first leadership conference. So I attended that when I was 15 years old, and I was hooked. I've been a student of leadership for over three decades now. I have read and learned as much as I could about as many leaders as I could from as many leaders as I could as often as I can. And that, that journey started then, you know, at that point when somebody saw something in me that I just didn't see in myself. Aside from the the leadership examples that you find in the bible what um what are some of the leadership uh examples that you you kind of i don't know have an affinity towards or had a, a great impact on your life and your, your leadership philosophy Boy, there are so many. It's, it's really hard to, to narrow that down because I love to read and, and I read so broadly. I love biographies of great leaders. You know, in high school, I was reading biographies of Lee Iacocca, a great business leader, you know, back in that day. Um, I, I, I love reading about political leaders, uh, you know, George Washington, Calvin Coolidge, Benjamin Franklin, these, these early leaders in our country who led through some pretty difficult seasons. 
and led mostly with integrity. I think you can learn from anybody. And my goal is to learn from as many people as I can. So I will learn from business leaders. I will learn from government leaders. I will learn from leaders in the education space, the nonprofit space, and of course, church space, where I've spent the last 25 years. I came into church ministry out of the business world. And so that's where I cut my teeth on leading and, and learning practically how to do that in a context with other people outside of the academic sense. And so I had experience in both of those realms. And for the last couple of decades, to be able to coach leaders, you know, in a variety of different contexts, wherever they are, that's given me a perspective and I hope some insights that I'm able to share through the book and through the coaching that I provide for clients that most of whom are in the business and uh, entrepreneur space. Going back to your, your youth in Alabama, mm -hmm. um, well, what did your mom and dad do when you were growing up? My dad had started his own advertising agency when I was two years old. Uh, so he had that entrepreneurial bent in him. Uh, and my mom stayed at home and raised us. And so that was, uh, that was the dynamic of the home that I grew up in, my brother and I grew up in, and uh, where we learned about what mattered and what, what we valued. Can you talk a little bit more about that, well, that first leadership conference that you went mm -hmm. to, um, that particular teacher, what was it, what was it about you, do you think, that really spoke to that teacher that, that then, you know, guided you on this path? You know, I've often wondered that. I've stayed in touch with this teacher up until a few years ago when he passed away. I think back and I think he saw what I try to look for when I'm talking to and working with young leaders. Uh, and, and that's potential. You know, it's so easy to look at somebody and see what's wrong. It's so easy to look at somebody and say, boy, they, they screwed that up. Or why would they do that? What's that decision about? It's a whole different thing to look at somebody and say, what, what could they be? What's inside of them that's not latent yet? And I think that's what he saw from the conversations that he and I had in, in years following that. I think that's what he saw. He saw what could be. He saw some, some raw material, if you will, that, that needed, some, uh, needed some work for sure. And that process has continued. I think learning is something you never stop doing if you're going to truly be a catalytic leader. You have to have a teachable spirit. You have to constantly be learning and growing and asking, what can I learn today? No matter the environment, no matter who it's from, you can learn from anybody. Sometimes it's just what not to do, but that can be incredibly valuable. Can you take me through the, uh, I guess, the, the steps that you took or you know, maybe the experiences that you had as you were moving through your education, uh, your your time uh, in college, and really what led you to become a pastor? That's a great question. It was never on the, on the drawing board, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I, was, I, I went to college out of high school. I had worked in a pharmacy at the end of high school and really liked the idea of helping people in a tangible and practical way. So I thought I'll, I'll go to school for pharmacy, be a pharmacist. And so I was a pre-pharmacy major my first year and a half, got through chemistry, inorganic chemistry, got to organic chemistry and said, you know what? This is not what I wanna spend the rest of my life doing. <laughs> and so I said, I'm, I'm out. And that's the point at which a lot of people make that choice. But now what? And I, and I didn't have a clear direction. I didn't have a clear focus. 
And so I dropped out and I said, I'm not going to waste money paying tuition when I don't know a clear direction. And that's what I started working in the business world first for a drugstore chain as an office manager and whatnot. And then moving over to Bell South Mobility, who was a wireless carrier in the Southeast back in those days and began to work for them. And I've worked for them for several years and promoted and promoted and continued to expand and learn and grow worked for great leaders and for some not so great leaders and, and got the opportunity to learn from both and to pour into what I was learning, pour into other people in, in a small way, but, but learning about leadership in a very different context than anything I'd ever experienced. It was during that season that I met Jesus. One of my roommates introduced me and said, hey, you know, you talk a lot about faith. I had grown up and going to church. It wasn't a big priority for me. I, I didn't have a relationship with Jesus at all but I knew all about it. And, and this guy who was a friend challenged me one day and he said, I think if, if you're, if you're going to talk like you know what you're talking about, you actually should, or you need to stop pretending like you do. And that's, that's some tough words, but you know what? That's what got me on the road to understanding the value of that relationship. So it was at that point when I was working at Bell South that I met Jesus and everything began to change in my life. And I began to, to wonder how can I help people given the experiences that I've had, no, there is no such thing as a wasted experience in your life. Everything that happens can be used for the benefit of other people around you if you have the right perspective on it. And so I began to, to look at that, and then a door opened for me to begin working in a local church part-time. I thought I would do this while I was working at Bell South, got into it, and discovered pretty quickly, I want to go back to school, and I want to I pour myself into this. And so that's what I did. I quit Bell South. I went back to school, continued working in some local churches while I did that, and ultimately pursued a degree in uh, biblical backgrounds and archaeology uh, for my master's degree, and then on to a PhD later on uh, after my kids were a little bit older and I had more margin at that point. Um, but that's that's kind of been the journey of, of how I got into ministry and why and, and where that took me. Why archaeology? <laughs> You know, that's, again, it's somebody who, who had an influence in my life when I was in college, finishing my, my bachelor's degree, had a professor who taught a class in biblical archaeology, taught several classes in the ancient Near East and Greco-Roman world. And I just love that time period. I love that part of history. And so I just began to dig deep and I would do a lot of reading even beyond what was required in the class. I would pop by his office. I would ask him questions and it just, it became an area of passion for me. And so I said, I really want to do this. My intent was to, to get a PhD and teach. That was the intent uh, at that point, thinking I could influence people that way, pour into other people who would then influence other people. Uh, and that, that was the intent uh, until one day I was at another leadership conference while I was working on my master's degree and heard somebody describe the local church in a way I'd never heard. And I came home and told my wife, if that's if that's what the local church can be, I've never seen it. I've never heard anybody talk about it that way. But if that's what it can be, I want to be a part of building that. And that's what I've spent the last 25 years doing. Tell me what it is that you told your wife or what it is that was relayed to you. About the local church? Yeah. That the local church is not a place where you go and you sit and you sour. That had been my experience with so many churches where it was a passive activity, where it was something where you go and it was almost like the like a like a social club. That was my experience growing up. It, it, not all the time, of course, and from a from a younger perspective, but but looking around, I didn't see a lot of of, of impact. I didn't see a lot of, of life change and transformation. And I certainly didn't see a lot of people who were super excited about what they were doing. 
it felt more like rote. It felt more like something that you do because you do. There's not a real reason for it. And then I heard this guy talking about the church in a way that actually made a difference. And, and what they were doing in the church made a difference in the community. And they were for the people in their community. And he pointed me to a verse that, that in the scriptures that, that I have never forgotten and that I talk about all the time now, something that the Apostle Paul wrote when he said that if God is for you, who can be against you? You know, I was 20-something years old before I heard anybody say or communicate that God is for you, not against you. You know, I mean, the picture of God that I had growing up, that I saw, was of this guy in the sky who's just waiting for you to screw up, who's just got the lightning bolt ready to zap you just as soon as you mess up. That's not at all the picture that scripture teaches, if you understand it correctly. And this is why I wanted to go to school to understand it myself, not just take somebody else's word for it so that I could communicate it in a way that made sense. And so that's what I've been doing. And as I do that, my goal is to pour into other people, pour into leaders who then can take what's been entrusted to them and pass that on to other people. I, I typically do not uh, talk religion uh, mm -hmm. on the show, um, but I do have this question. So your one of your major focuses is Old Testament. And there seems to be, well, from my experience, Old Testament and New Testament, the the picture or the image of God is one that's loving and one that uh, brings his wrath. How, how does that then... Um, I mean, I, I think that's where that image of a God that's waiting for you to screw up so he can strike you down comes from is the Old Testament. And in, um, in your studies, how do you, well, and how do you teach your, uh, your congregation about that transition from Old Testament to New Testament? That's a very big question, Dave. <laughs> Let <laughs> me try to unpack that a little bit. So there is this very common belief that exactly what you said, that in the Old Testament, you have the God of wrath and the, in the New Testament, you have the God of love. That is truly a myth. That is, that is not at all how God is pictured, but it's all about understanding the context. And, and this is, again, what I studied. And so this was my major area of study, the background, the archaeology, the context. We have to understand that the scriptures were written over a very long period of time by, you know, dozens of different people. We have to understand that they were written in a context that is very, very different than the context you and I live in in 21st century America, right? It's different in a historical sense, different historical era. It's different in a geographical sense. It's in a place we don't live and most of us have never been to. It's in a different language that it was originally written in and we've translated. And every translation is an interpretation. Every single one. If you know more than one language, you know trying to go from one language to another sometimes can be a little tricky and you have to make interpretive decisions. So, so you've got historical context, you've got geographic context, you've got linguistic context, you've got cultural context. This is, this is a group of people in the Old Testament and in the New that lived in a culture that was dramatically different from our own. Now, we're going to take those words that were written down, and we're going to pick them up and drop them into our culture. And we're going to understand them through our lens, our 21st century, in most cases, American lens, 
right? The people that I talk to. Wow. Is it possible we could misunderstand something? <laughs> Honestly, it's really hard not to, right? Because of the difference in context. And this is why context matters so much and why I talk about it so much. I think you have to understand what it meant then. And then and only then can you bring out and understand what it means now. That's where you have to begin. And this is the problem most people make. Most people make when you, when you look at the Old Testament and you say, well, this is, this is violent and angry and blah, blah, blah. This is a God that's different than the God of love in the New Testament. That's because we're not understanding it in the proper context, right? You, you have to understand all of those different areas that I talked about. You have to read it in that sense. And when you do, then you begin to get a fuller picture. I can argue, and I'm actually teaching right now through the book of Exodus, and I can tell you there's more grace in the book of Exodus than most people have ever thought about. We don't think about grace in the Old Testament, yeah. but guess what? It's all over the place. You just have to see it and understand it in its proper context. Well, can you give me uh, an example? Sure. Uh, it, within that context of sure so i'm teaching I'm, the people have come out of the exodus god has rescued them from slavery from hundreds of years of slavery in egypt right people of israel have come out they've come through the red sea they're in the wilderness and what happens they start to complain right some translations say they start to murmur which i think is a fantastic word because it sounds like exactly what it is there's no way to murmur positively right this is what they're doing they're complaining they're hungry they're thirsty they're thirsty again like, what, what, what are you going to do? They're in the desert. They've seen God do stuff that nobody's ever seen God do before. He has literally rescued them from slavery, brought them into freedom. And what's their response? It's to complain, to complain, to complain, to complain again and again and again. What's God's response? Well, I'll tell you, my response might have been to say, hey, you know what? All right, I'm starting with somebody else. You people are annoying. Like, what's wrong with you? That's not what God did. When they complain, they complain to Moses, the person who's led them out. They complain to him. They complain against Moses. Really, they're complaining against God is what they're doing. Moses doesn't have any power in and of himself to make water out of nothing. Come on. They're complaining against God. And Moses comes to God and said, hey, what, what do you want me to do here? And God's response is not, yeah, they're so annoying. I'm just like to smite them all. No, his response is, you know what? I'm going to provide water. I'm going to bring bread from heaven. I'm going to bring manna. I'm going to bring meat for them to eat, quail. Why would he do that? Why is his response that instead of what mine might be or maybe yours might be? Grace. You see the God of love showing love and patience and grace and mercy throughout the pages of the Old Testament if you have eyes to see it and you understand it properly. I'm just thinking of different areas of the old testament where i mean there is judgment of course there, yes and, and there is those times where he just wipes out an entire people <laughs> but there is in the new testament as well and i think what we have to understand is that our decisions have consequences and just because God extends grace and mercy does not mean the consequences go away. Yeah. We have free will. We have the ability to choose. That is a gift that God has given us. But with that gift, to quote Spider-Man, 
comes great responsibility, right? We have to have that understanding. If we think that, well, you know, I can do whatever I want and God will just smooth it over and take away the consequences, we're missing it. Because what we see in the Old Testament and in the New is people exercising that gift, some in great ways and some in not so great ways. And the problem of living in a world where everybody has free will is that what you do might affect me and probably will eventually. And what I do might affect you and probably will eventually. Living in a, in a sinful and fallen world means that we are constantly bumping up against the choices of other people. And those consequences aren't erased because of God's grace. Thank you for, for going down that road with me. Sure. <laughs> um, I, I want to go back into the, the leadership arena mm -hmm. and I mean, it's still within the context of the church because I would imagine it's not the easiest thing to do is, is to lead a congregation. Um, you know, there's a lot of different personalities, a lot of different ideas on how things should be. And then a lot of the people that you're working with are volunteering their time. So what are some of the lessons that you've learned leading in that capacity and in that environment that, you know, could help leaders in other arenas? I heard a guy say one time, he was having a conversation with the president of Motorola, CEO of Motorola. And the guy said, you know, your job's not that hard talking to this guy who's a pastor. He said, it's not that hard. I mean, you know, you show up on Sunday, you stand up, you talk a little while. It's not that big of a deal. He said, what are you, what are you actually doing the rest of the time? And he said, well, I'm leading. I'm leading people. I'm leading teams, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, yeah, but how hard is that really? And he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to go to Motorola tomorrow. I want you to go to the office. And I want you to tell everybody, I want you to move this direction. And by the way, I'm not going to pay any of you. I'm not going to pay any of you anymore. You're all going to be volunteers from this point. But I want you to go this direction with me. How many of you think are going to do that? He said, none of them. They're all going to go somewhere else. Exactly. In the business world, you have leverage in the form of a paycheck to get people to do and to go and to see. In the church and with volunteers, you don't do that. That doesn't work. You don't have that leverage. How do you lead? Leadership, John Maxwell has said, leadership is simply influence, nothing more and nothing less. What have I learned? I've learned that in order to lead people, you need to paint a picture of something that could be, something that should be, and help them understand how they can contribute to making that a reality. Help them understand that they have been created on purpose for a purpose that is bigger than just building their own world, their own life, something that is bigger than themselves. I think everything that is put in our lives is put in our lives for a reason. And it is not just for us. It's for the benefit of those around us. This is why I'll talk often about the danger of being a reservoir. You know, people pour into us. We have opportunities and experiences and, and, and all the skills and things that we learn and develop. But if we just hold all that in for, for ourselves, we're missing it. We need to move from being a reservoir to being a conduit where we share those experiences, those skills, all that is poured into us, we share that with other people for their benefit. And when we do that, not only does it help them, but it drives it deeper within us as well. This is what I've learned in the local church, that 
that the influence that we have comes from the words that we use. It comes from the pictures that we paint. And we help people understand there's something bigger than just themselves. What you're talking about right now, <clears throat> I, I talk about in my book. I've actually had multiple conversations on this show. I've been on other podcasts where I talk about this, but um, what I what I use or the term that I use for that is selfish altruism, mm -hmm. where you're adding value to yourself so that you're more capable of adding value to those around you. And as a leader, the only way that you can really measure your success is by evaluating the success of the people that you're leading. Yes. And through that, you know, to be able to to be able to evaluate their success, mm -hmm. you have to know what their version of success is. And the only yeah. way you can do that is by, by effective communication and, right. and having empathy to get, you know, meet them where they're at and understand yes. their life. And, um, and when you can understand what their version of success is, and you can, like your teacher in high school, and you can see their potential and, and put that investment into them, <laughs> that, that return, it's not only going to raise the performance of the team but what you experience as the leader is so much greater than anything that i've ever experienced i mean to to put your people before yourself is the way it's supposed to be but what you experience as the leader is something that and until you've gone through that I don't think it's, you can talk about it, but until you experience it, I don't think there's a way that you could understand exactly how incredible that, that is. And I agree. I think, I think this is why I talk so much about building up people. I think that's our job as leaders. My job is to, is to not just see people as cogs in the machine, accomplishing the tasks that I need them to do. That's a one-dimensional view of people. I need to see them as 3D. And this is why in my one-on-ones with my direct reports, I ask them. I want to know about their lives beyond just what they do, you know, during their 40 hours that they're working for us or whatever. I want to understand their dreams so that I can help them move toward achieving them. That's my job as their leader. That is the, the term servant leadership, right, at its, at its core, something that originated with Jesus, actually. Patrick Lencioni has said, and I agree with him, that we talk about servant leadership like there's any other kind. <laughs> there's, there's really not. If it's not servant leadership, we can't call it leadership. We should call it something else. Our job as leaders is to pour into and invest in and lift up those we lead to help them achieve what it is that they have the potential to be. And when we do that, we're going to find they're going to contribute to the mission and, and the achievement of the organization that they're a part of. 
I've seen it too many times to think it's a fluke. It's how it works. When we invest in people, they invest back and we all benefit. Every time I have spent, I've spent time investing in somebody else, investing in a leader, not only does it help them, but you're exactly right. It helps me too, because I learn, I grow. As I say, you can learn from anybody. If you come to it with the right attitude, with a teachable spirit. I'm curious about the title of your book, Catalytic mm -hmm. Leadership. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I hear the word or read the word catalytic, I think of the catalytic converter on a car, mm -hmm. um, but you're talking about a, a catalyst. And can you, can you talk about what catalytic leadership is and how, how you came to land on that title for your book? It actually comes from my brief chemistry studies in college. <laughs> when, when, I was, when I was studying and learning, I came across the idea of a catalyst and began to understand what that is. A catalyst is something that, that accelerates or ignites significant change, typically creating a significant impact. And as I began to, to think about that in the context of leadership, I think about the great leaders that I've learned from, some from afar through writing, some in person. And every one of them would resonate with that. They would resonate with, hey, I want to I accelerate or ignite significant change. I want to make an impact. I want to make a difference. I want to move things from where they are to where they could be, where they should be. That's catalytic leadership. And so the, the book actually comes out of the coaching conversations that I've had with people that I've coached for the last 20 plus years. As I have talked with leaders in, in the government contracting and government space, as you might imagine in the DC area, as I've talked with people in education, in the business world, and entrepreneurs and solopreneurs, I've discovered that there are threads that run through every one of those. There are principles that apply no matter your context, whether you're in the C-suite or whether you're working in a local church, whether you're a solo entrepreneur or whether you lead a team of hundreds, the same principles apply. You just have to understand them and apply them. And so the book is actually 12 principles that come from those conversations, things that I have learned from my own journey and from the journeys of those that I coach. One of the things that I talk about quite a bit on, on this podcast is the value that comes out of falling on your face. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you've got great plans for your future. You, you take on this amazing project. You know that it's going to change things for the better. And for whatever reason, whether it's by your own ignorance or missteps or whatever, you fall on your face and you know, maybe you embarrass yourself, you embarrass your organization, whatever it is. There's, and I think you would agree as, as an avid reader of leadership, how many of history's greatest leaders before they become known for what they're known for, how many of them actually fell on their face and experienced some massive failure. Every single one, no exceptions. 
John Maxwell has written that failure can either be your teacher or it can be your undertaker. You pick. You decide. The great leaders see it as a teacher. Thomas Edison was once asked, what was it like to fail 10,000 times when you were trying to create a light bulb? And he looked at the person and he said, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I discovered 10,000 ways that didn't work. (laughs) That's seeing failure as a teacher, not as your undertaker. And this is the perspective I think that catalytic leaders bring. We look at opportunities, every circumstance, every experience. What can I learn here? What is it that I can take forward from this? That requires reflection. It requires evaluation, which I talk a lot about because experience alone doesn't make you any better. (laughs) We think it does. It really doesn't. It's evaluated experience that makes you better. And so evaluation and reflection are so critical to improving as a leader. I think what we have to understand when we think about failure is that it is an absolute non-negotiable on every journey. Nobody gets it right. Nobody is 100% up and to the right all the time with no exceptions. No one. I went to college to be a pharmacist and washed out my second year. What do you do then? I'm sitting there trying to figure out where to go, what to do. I didn't have a clear direction or focus. At that point, I found one later. Is failure going to be your teacher or your undertaker? You decide. What do you believe, if you look back on your life, through all of the lessons that you've learned about leadership and the experiences that you've had in the failures that you've had, what was the most valuable lesson that you've learned? I would say it is what I call the one non-negotiable of catalytic leadership. And that is the cultivation of a teachable spirit. I've watched too many leaders who get to a certain point in their journey and they've got enough track behind them where they feel like they can kind of coast a little bit. They, they got this, they understand how it works. They understand how, how things happen and, and they can do this. They can do this and they stop learning. They just begin to coast and that coasting turns into a drift into mediocrity. And that is not helpful for any leader. Uh, It's not helpful for anybody, but especially for a leader, because leaders influence those they lead. And people follow what they see. So if you start to drift into mediocrity, guess what the people around you who you're following are going to do? They're going to follow that same track. Is that really what you want? Is that how you get to excellence? Of course, the answer is no. So by cultivating a teachable spirit, by understanding that that I never know everything, there's always more to learn. I think that is the single most important ingredient in the soup or the chili that is leadership. Based on your response there, I would imagine at some point you got complacent. Mm, Sure. And started to drift into mediocrity. Mm -hmm. What was it? that, I don't know, smacked you in the face and brought you back? And really, what helped you come to that realization that you have to cultivate that teachable spirit? 
you know, one, one of the, the core things that I talk about as a remedy to the drift is the people around you, the people that you choose to spend time with. They make a huge difference in your life. And, and we know that we think about this with, with, with kids and we talk to our kids and we say, hey, you know what, people around you, they influence your life, you know, for good or for bad. They can be a good influence or not. And we, but we think as adults, that's not true anymore. We've, we've grown beyond that. Well, the fact of the matter is the people around you influence the direction of your life for good or for bad. If you spend a lot of time with somebody who has a very negative bent on life, who sees the glass as always being half, half empty, that, you know, well, you know, it's just I, all I can do is see everything wrong with whatever we're talking about. Guess what? Over time, you're going to begin to bend that way. Conversely, if you spend time with people who, who see the glasses half full, they're like, ah, you know, it's just not full yet, but just wait, it's going to be. Guess what? You're going to start to bend that way. The people around you make a difference. In my own journey, when I have been drifting that direction, it's the people around me who will speak into that. People that I have given permission to speak into my life and call me on stuff and say, you know what, this is not your best. This is not the best version of you. Careful here. This is why I've had a leadership coach for many years now, because I need somebody to see what I can't see. It is really hard to see the whole picture when you're in the frame. You just can't. You need somebody from the outside who's going to help you see what you can't see. Somebody who's going to ask you questions that maybe nobody else is going to ask you in your life. And who's going to call you on it when you start to drift or, or coast. That's what I've had. And that's what's helped me to get out of that drift and even to avoid it, right? It's a guardrail that I've built into my life to keep me out of that ditch. Incredible advice. And I love that analogy. It's really hard to see the, the big picture if you're in the frame. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It, and, and you think about that, and, and it's so true in so many parts of our lives. Isn't it true that somebody else often has so much greater perspective and insight into something we're dealing with? We're in the middle of it, right? We're in the weeds. We can't see the whole thing because we're trying to figure out how to move this blade and this blade. And somebody else is like, hey, step back a little bit. Like, let me, let me tell you what I'm seeing. And all of a sudden there's clarity. Clarity is a gift. Clarity is kindness. We've talked a little bit about your book. When people buy your book and, and sit down and read it, what is the, the main message? What, what do you want people to, to hold on to? If they read it one time, what's the main thing that you want them to remember? That you don't have to stay where you are. There's, there's a lot of people who think that, and they're thinking from a fixed mindset that, you know, I'm either successful or I'm not, but there's no way to move from, from not being successful to being successful. They think they're stuck. They're, they're a victim of their circumstances. My hope is that people will see that you can make intentional choices and, and decisions that will change things. You can move from where you are to where you want to be. Growth is not just possible. It's very, very possible for you, but you've got to choose it. You've got to decide. There are things that you can do, must do, to help put you on that path. That's what the book is about. It's, it's, it's a compilation of, of these principles that, that I've learned in my journey and from the journeys of others that I hope will help people to recognize themselves in the pages. I wrote it. My goal was to make it very conversational so that it feels like we're sitting across a table having coffee with one another. 
Right? I want I want it to be that conversational so that it feels like a friend sharing with you some things they've learned so that you might recognize yourself in the pages and say, hey, you know what? This is helpful for me today. I needed this right now. I really got some valuable nuggets out of this. Like every every guest that I, well, not every guest I've had on, but most every guest that I've had on, the conversations have been incredible. And I always take away some really valuable pieces that I can apply to my own life hmm. and, and pass on to those around me. And yeah. I just really, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that you agreed to spend this time with me to share some of your own experiences and, and some of those lessons that you've learned in your life. So thank you very much. Well, Dave, I've, I've really enjoyed it and I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, again, I think that's part of our responsibility, right? When we learn, we should share that with as many people as we can. And that's why I wrote the book. So, What is the best way for people to connect with you to either purchase your book, follow you on social media or uh, enlist your, your coaching services? What's the best way for people to connect with you? You can go to my website, catalyticleadership.net to find more information about the coaching that I provide. You can connect with me on LinkedIn uh, or on Facebook. I'm on both of those platforms. And I would love to extend to your podcast listeners an offer of a free copy of the book. Uh, this is something that, that I'm doing because I want to get it into as many hands as I can. If you go to catalyticleadershipbook.com and you're willing to pay the shipping, help me get it to you. I'll make sure you get a free copy of the book. Thank you very much. I will, uh, I will have a link to your website in the show notes. So everybody listening, very easy. Just go to the show notes and click on the link. So, uh, thank you again. Dave, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.